Thank you, worship team. And good morning to all of you. I'm acquainted with a few of you. I'm newer here. My wife has been here longer than myself as I was out in other places I was working. But uh, I just want to say I just love Grace Bible. Do you? Man. Somebody told me last week, they said, you know, I love where I live, but you know what I love more? My church. Don't you like to hear that from everyone? And what a joy to be a part of Grace Bible. <clears throat> I need to tell you up front, I'm nervous. It makes you nervous and now probably frightened. <laughs> a number of years ago, we had a guest preacher came to our church and he was in the front row, he came through the pulpit, took out two sheets of paper, and he said, can I borrow someone's Bible? The elders went, oh. and we made it through. Our subject matter this morning is the new covenant. And we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper before too long. But my attempt this morning is to give us the features of the new covenant covenant to get a better handle on the essentials of the Christian life, and we are mindful, we'll pray in a minute, that we are reading what is true, what God has said about himself, his creation, his redemption, his providence, his grace, but it's how God is acting. If you were to do all the verbs in the text this morning, you would see what's called the present active verb. It's still ongoing. God is doing it today as he did in the writing of, from the beginning of Genesis. He is the God who acts, A-C-T-S. My life was changed by a small book, the big book, of course, but a small book written in the 50s by a man named G. Ernest Wright. You can still get it. It's about that thick. You could probably read it in an afternoon. But in that book, he argued that we should be reading Scripture, approaching Scripture, like the men and the women and the families of old. And he said this, we should read the Bible with this approach. As they did in the days of old, reciting the mighty acts or events of God. And he argued that the Bible is grounded in that, that God is acting for his glory in Christ Jesus, his plan and purposes being carried out in Christ Jesus, including creation. Reciting the mighty acts of God. Carl Heim said something similar. The primary reality in which we ourselves and our whole existence are in fact altogether dynamic and living. God is acting. He pierced the darkness and he gives us his only begotten, his beloved son, to change, I'm going to go back to the word truth, or to put in our minds and hearts reality. The Greek word for truth could also be interpreted reality. The idea of this is real, and we live in a fictional world, don't we? 
When I was a young man, they said, well, it's time to learn to live in the real world. Now, I know what they meant. They didn't mean don't say in the church and just that be your kind of your safety place, but you're out in the community, you're out in the neighborhood, and you're loving people. But we need to remind that this is what's real. This is what shapes our minds and hearts so we live as God intended, or we might say, as it is to be human as God intended. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians 8. Paul talking, you know the context, about what it is and the freedom they had, etc. But yet for us, he says, there is one God, the Father. Listen from this. From whom are all things, including your very existence. We exist because he's willing our existence. This very moment. From whom are all things, and listen, for whom we exist. And it gets better. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. We exist by the will of the Father and the Son. He is conferring life even as we're sitting here and hopefully not falling asleep. So our passage is the new covenant out of Hebrews 10. We'll read it and then we'll pray. Hebrews 10, I'd probably start with verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his serving service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant, now we know this is about the covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Father, we ask you to bring to bear on us these tremendous verses who have a multitude, that has a multitude of doctrines about who you are and what you've done. And this history that you've planned for the world we rejoice in it because we are participants and partakers of your divine grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll look at three features, but before we do that, we're going to look at a companion text that gives us a motive for God sending his son, giving us or bringing to completion or to its ratifying the new covenant. You have your Bibles. I want you to look at a companion verse from the Old Testament. We just quoted some of the Old Testament or the writer of Hebrews is from Jeremiah. 
But there's a companion verse concerning the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. It's in your bulletin. If you could turn there in your bulletin for a minute, the Ezekiel, the prophet, who is a contemporary to some degree of Jeremiah, gives a motive for the redemptive plan that God lays out and carries out, has a resolve, is infinitely committed to. And if you look there, I don't have the bolt in front of me, I don't think, I didn't bring it. But in verse 23, it gives a, a motive. It says that he will vindicate his holy name. Now you were raised, I was raised with this. I get it. The reason God gave his only begotten son, the motive was just to love us. I think there's an intersection here that he's going to vindicate his holy name. That word vindicate means to defend, to maintain the integrity of that name, or to insist, I love this definition on vindicate, on, to insist on a purified recognition. So God's motive wasn't just to love us. I know they intersect, but he is about revealing, maintaining, defending his glory and greatness. So you could say, the end for which God created the world and brought about redemption is to bring about his purposes and plan in Christ Jesus for the Trinity's glory. So he's going to defend the holiness of his name, even in what we're about to embark on this morning. So that's the introduction. So title, The Glorious Dawn. They say the best place to see the rising of the sun, there's like four or five of them in the world, to see the sun rise, Uluru, Australia. I have no idea where that is. But they say the sun rises behind some of the most stunning mountains. Another was in Bali. Another was in Burma. One's in Bryce Canyon here in the U.S. of A. They say one of the greatest places to witness sunrise is Mount Fuji in Japan. Here's what it says. It's the highest of all mountains. You will see, it says, a tremendous view of a snowy cap. And the sunrise there will be almost impossible to match. But there's a glorious sunrise or dawning in Hebrews chapter 10. So we'll look at three points or three features this morning. How it was accomplished. A single saving act. Then we're going to look at the substance of how God acted on our behalf. And then a summary and then some implications. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do. It says in verse 11, And every priest stood or stands daily at his service Offering repeatedly. But. See that contrasting word? Verse 12. But. That was the Old Testament Mosaic law. That they would have to walk through repeatedly. The offering of sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews is saying. But. That's, that's the word you go. Oh I better listen to that. But rather now. Christ offered a single sacrifice. This isn't religious jargon. This is a history of the 
history that God has ordained would come to pass. And he would bring to bear on whoever he's writing to, the Hebrews, primarily a Hebrew audience, that that's not necessary to keep doing the old mosaic, repeated offering and sacrifices. It's a single saving act, as opposed to numerous and what would seem to be endless sacrifices. And he says what he did, the Old Testament mosaic law and ceremonial laws, only covered up, he says he gave a single sacrifice, and then what did he do? He sat down. That's where he is today. In space and time and history, he came. What the account is in the Bible is for us to remember and then to believe. When we read these verses, we are summoned to absorb them. And it says he sat down for how long? He makes a single sacrifice. So he, here's the word, he ratifies or enacts what was promised from Genesis chapter 3. But it says he sat down for how long? You ever try to predict when Jesus is going to return? This even makes it more difficult. When he makes his enemies his footstool. Difficult to put a date on that. He goes on to say in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected or sanctified. That's a bit confusing. It likely means he has perfected or brought to completion or to maturity what he had promised. And from that promise that one day we will be in, quote, in heaven perfected, but we between then and now, are being sanctified. If you're a parent, you're not looking to make good children. Hope I don't get in trouble with this one. You want to shape dependent children who depend on God and are being sanctified. There's improvement, but what about us? We are being sanctified. That's his irresistible work in our life. Unless we put our hands up and say, no. But Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless. Now be careful of holy and blameless. Does that mean you sit in the corner and you're never out there? You're not alive and active in Christ? Holy and blameless means we are a loving congregation. We are walking through life, caring for those, seeing needs, meeting them, greeting one another. There are 65, some people say 100 one another verses in the Bible. But then he goes on to say, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There's a great deal of talk today in the church, and I think it's great because I think we're trying to 
battle some of what's in our culture, identity. So now we have conversations about sexual identity. It's on and on and on about who we are as Americans, who we are as white or black. And so this identity thing is mushroomed. So you want to know what Ephesians says your identity is? You're a son or a daughter. For how long? It says before the foundation of the world. That's why some of us have gray hair. It's a long time from the foundation of the world. But that's your chief identity. We are sons and daughters of the living God from eternity, the laying of the foundation of the earth before. He is making us into the likeness of his son. There's a saying that's been around maybe years ago. It was more popular. But God accepts us just the way we are. So come just the way you are. I think it's better said, God receives us, or we receive him, just where we are, and then he has an agenda. He has a big agenda. He wants to shape us into the image of his son. Can I just say something of encouragement? I see that at Grace Bible. I see people being shaped into the image of the glorious, beloved, one and only son of our Heavenly Father. So the glorious dawn, what is in fact, it, what is in fact brings it or ratifies it is Christ comes. And then verse 15 is worth spending some time on. And the Holy Spirit bears witness or is bearing witness. It's one of those active verbs again. He is bearing witness then and now. What's he bearing witness to? The word witness there is martyria. It's that, it's that word in Greek that means martyr. We get our English word martyr. But we have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is now working, acting. What's he telling us? He's bearing witness. He says this, I am making a covenant. Where's he quoting from? The book of Jeremiah. So the Holy Spirit is involved in our sanctification, and now he's involved in our communication. He is convincing. The Holy Spirit is a great convincer that we are to believe, but here he's convincing us of some of the features or substance of the new covenant. First of all, notice these two words, I will. I will, in the next verses, I will make them, I will put my laws, and I will remember their sins no more. Luke just shared with us that he initiates salvation. They used to say, he's the hound of heaven, and he will get who he's after. And he says, after these days, when is that? Probably the account in Acts 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fills all those who are gathered at that very time. And then subsequent believers, because Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard, what happened? The word of truth of the gospel, and believed, 
And then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We don't need an extra experience. I'm not trying to make a comment necessarily about that as much as this is what has been given to us when the moment you believe, after you heard, so they have to hear, we have to hear, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So first of all, the Spirit bears witness, and then he tells us more of the feature of the new covenant. Verse 16b, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their mind. When a person believes, we have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but now we're indwelled with the, the truth. It's like the inner sanctum. The great convincer, our divine helper, the Holy Spirit, writes the laws on our hearts and minds. It's a declarative. What would be the purpose of writing on our hearts his laws? First of all, what's the law? Well, most people think, well, the law is something you obey. That we just got to obey the law. But the law informed the people of the infinite worth of God. So keep that in mind. That's what we, I like to say. We now are called to, the terms of the covenant for us, are loving obedience. So the Holy Spirit is working our sanctification, writing the laws of, us, of the living God on our hearts and minds and he is convincing us of the infinite worth of his son. The apostle Paul stated in Philippians 3.8 Indeed, I count everything as lost because, it's causal, because of the infinite worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The aim of the Holy Spirit is to ignite in our heart and maintain in our heart an increasing esteem and love for God's glory. Do you see the motive there? What does the law do? It governs our life, not just what we think, but what we love. Because our Christianity is based not on just what we know. Paul actually warned them in 1 Corinthians. He said, love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. What did he mean? We shouldn't have to know God. No, he meant be careful as you take in more knowledge. Keep in mind that it has a higher end than knowing. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, I think verse 5 it is. He said the end of our instruction, our aim of our instruction is love from pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere mind. So the end of our knowledge of knowing God is not just to say, look what I know. But actually, it would humble us when we say, look who I love. More features of the covenant. I will write 
my laws on their hearts and on their minds, meaning not just cognitions, but affections. Another feature. We're talking about the three features. This is still in the second point. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. An assertion. I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. It's counterintuitive. You could rehearse your sins to me. You probably have a catalog. I can do that. People help us do that, right? They said, you remember when? But King David had something similar. He has a prayer in Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. David must be remembering those sins of his youth if he would bring them up in prayer. But there's something very interesting that, and I'm not passing any doubt on your translation, but in that verse, I'm in 17, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds. And then you have these two words, no more. The English version does not capture what the Greek says. The Greek, and don't be impressed, I don't know that much Greek. It's a ooh, may. Sounds like something they'd say in the military. Ooh, may. But it's a double negative, which means if you were to translate from the Greek, it would say, I will never, ever remember your sins. It's raised to the second level. That's the way Hebrew writers would write. You remember when Isaiah's in the temple and he sees maybe a vision, but what is being said there by the angels, holy, holy, holy. That's the way a Hebrew writer would raise something to another level of importance. And so whoever wrote Hebrews, I know a lot of people think the Apostle Paul did, but he was using the Hebraic writing to say, I will never, ever remember your sins. Now, it might say, well, is God forgetful? <laughs> no. He's choosing not to catalog our sins or to write them down and say, there's another one. Now, we need to be careful with this. That doesn't mean we can just sin and sin and sin. It's not a big deal. Because if we say we have no sin, we lie. If we say we've never sinned, we lie, according to 1 John 1, 8 and 9. So what do we do with our sin? Confession. In the Old Testament system, laws were covered. Under the new covenant, he not only forgives. Are you seeing the second level? Not only forgives, but he forgets. Romans 6. How shall those who died to sin still live in it? Good question. That grace may abound? That's kind of the help we get from Romans 6. What it means is that he remembers our sins no more, is that we are fully and definitely cleansed in Christ. Could I suggest to you something there's in there? Remember your sins and your lawless deeds never, ever again. Is it possible that shame is in there as well? I remember being a month working at a halfway house. And I believe this young man was saved and he would rehearse his sins. And he said, I have to keep the shame. I know I'm forgiven. 
I know my guilt is taken care of, but I have to keep the shame to work my part in the forgiveness. No, no, a thousand times no. And then we get a summary. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. No longer. It's an obvious implication. There's not only, they, these Hebrews, should not look for another way to try and maybe reinstate, reinstate a sacrificial system. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews saying, that's, here's, here's a good German word, kaput. It's gone. The new has come. A number of years ago, the seminary I went through, it's a good seminary. It's in South Carolina. But not many years before my wife and I went there, there was a group of students. They somehow got the notion that they should continue to offer sacrifices. So they were actually, they set up an altar in the woods and they were sacrificing chickens. And the president got wind of it and he said, we need a meeting like bad. <laughs> but the writer here says, there's no longer any need for that. The Levitical system of repeated sacrifices is obsolete. We're almost done. What are some implications or applications? There's a common question. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you think it. And that's okay. How do I relate to God now that I'm a believer? We've just been told. We have a picture how God relates to us. How do we relate to him? It's right there. God's writing his laws on our hearts and minds. And I'll say it again. I think the best way to look at the Christian life is loving obedience. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I've come to preach what? Obedience of faith. He repeats it in Romans 16. I've come to preach the obedience of faith. But there's greater questions answered. What does God think of you? Remember a young man coming to me and he said, well, I always think God's condemning me. I said, we need to talk. Came to my office. You wouldn't know him, so I think I'm safe tell you about that conversation we met for weeks and weeks and weeks. Finally, with gentleness, let's call him Jay. That's not his real name. I said, Jay, I have every thought that you're truly a believer. If God's still condemning you? And then he began to unpack his family life. And so we're able to look at that a little bit. We didn't stay there, but we brought scripture, brought scripture, brought scripture. And finally, I got fed up. I said it gently. I said, you're living a fictional life. He thought if he looked at himself as the dirty, rotten sinner, certainly he was humble. No. I said, it's an insidious fairy tale. That kind of made him listen. But his law is written on our hearts. And what God thinks of me? In terms of love. We are sons and daughters. 
Number two, this is real life. When we wake up in the morning, our identity, if we're going to go back to that, is we are sons and daughters and we are united with Christ. Can you think of anything more glorious? You can even smile about that, right? That's our reality. That's what we are now in Christ Jesus. We are not just upgraded. We are transformed. We are sons and daughters. We no longer think of ourselves as dirty, rotten sinners. We have a new identity. You ever hear this? I'm almost done. I don't know how I'm doing for time. But it's snowing out. You're not going to go out and do much anyway, right? Ever heard this? I need to learn to forgive myself. Do you struggle with that? This, this, this text about forgiveness is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He forgives and he doesn't remember. Not because he can, because he chooses not to remember. He's not going to keep cataloging our sins. But think about this for a minute. I need to learn to forgive myself. Now, if someone says that, if they mean I need to come to grips with everything that I've done wrong, that I'm forgiven, I've got, got it. But can we really forgive ourselves? God forgives us. Careful if what you mean by that, that you have to somehow conjure up in your mind, or we, I, that I have to forgive myself, I really probably haven't done due diligence with what it means to be forgiven. What if people, other people, won't forget your sins? They keep bringing them up. We have a situation like that right now. I remember years ago, I had an individual who I just needed to talk to to make things right. I, I tried five times. This individual happened to be a female, and she was spreading everything everywhere. And I tried five times, and finally I called the counselor. He said, stop. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. She won't ever forget. Well, I think she's with the Lord today. She won't or won't forget. But we have to be careful that when others won't forgive us, assuming that we've tried to make things right, you can't do anything about it. But there's another thing to think about. Are we forgetting other people's sins? Are we saying, released, done, I'm not going to keep bringing that up? And it comes in my mind that's saying, oh yeah, I forgave them when and when and when and when. We remember we forgave them. If you need to talk to them, surely. But there are people who will not let us forget our sins. Even decades later, a man came to me. He said, my sister is struggling. She's really struggling. She's bitter, and she's angry at my mom, our mom. And I said, well, uh, where does your mom live? He said, she's been dead for seven years. We can hold on to things like that, can't we? But are we not like God, be imitators of God, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, and walk in love where we just say, that is gone. I've been offended. Proverbs said it is a glory to overlook transgressions. It really is. And I bet you've done it. I'm not telling you anything new. You forgive others and you're just freed up. 
What's the truth? This is who we are in Christ Jesus. And he is at the right hand of the Father. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit is bearing witness and continues to bear witness, maybe because we're a little bit stubborn and we won't accept it, but the Spirit is bearing witness, putting his laws on his hearts and minds, on our hearts and minds, and remembering, convincing us that God does not remember our sins and lawless deeds. And it's final. Would you pray with me? Father, we just rejoice that these are tremendous truths that free us. Father, there's so much in here even about relationships in our home. How we can bring up other sins. Keep us from that. Keep us from that. We think about our spouses and how we remember. We remember what they did and remember what they did. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. What a tremendous release that is. And then they'll remind them, John 8, if you continue or abide in my word, if you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Thank you for this text. In Jesus' name, amen.